please welcome my friend Jimmy Gowan. Thanks, everybody. I, I don't, I don't, I told the guy that gave me the mic, I don't need a mic because I got a big mouth. But it's, it's a privilege to be here. And um, I, I told Brian one of the things that I really enjoyed with our friendship was the time that, I, that he allowed me to be at Portugal with the kids over at Portugal. And I would see a lot of these kids at this time in this dispensation that would say to me, you remember me? You came to Portugal and you spoke such and such and such. So that, that gives me an idea that I made an impact on a child's life. And they become an adult and they remember something that you said in an assembly program. Not only did they remember what you said, you know, you, you brought a black preacher into most Adomley White School and you spoke way over the time that they gave you. And I told Brian a minute ago, you can't ask a black preacher to speak 30 minutes. He's just getting warmed up. <laughs> I always kid people when they come to my church, I said, but we have church a long time. <laughs> Don't let that scare you. So all of you think you're going to get out of here by one, change your plans. <laughs> But, but, it's, but it's, it's good to be here. It's good to be here, really, um, to, to share with you. And one of the things that the Lord put in my spirit to talk to you men about, what is your calling? What has God called you to do? What is the gift that God gave you? Man, we can go to church Sunday after Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, but what did God call you to do? What, what part of the church that he's initiated to be your calling, your specific sphere that you make an impact in? Because the world needs us right now. We look at all the stuff that's going on right now and we're complaining. Remember the Lord says, if my people that are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, I will hear from heaven and I will heal the land. But how, how many people in the church actually walk in that scripture? It's in Chronicles. I think Chronicles 7. If my people that are called by my name will humble themselves, we, 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 I have to be careful because I don't like to be programmatic because we can make a lot of programs happen. But how do we affect change in a community when we become programmatic? Let me share what I mean by that. All of my years on city council, I always said to the people in this community, what are the felt needs in this community? What are the, and this is something that John Guest and I spoke about wherever we went. Because see, it's so easy for you to put a program together and take it in the community and tell the people, here's what we've developed. We think this is going to work for you. Rather than doing it the other way, bringing the community to you, guess what, what do you guys need? What is it that's the, what's the most important things that's going to transform not only the east side of Charleston, but the west side of Charleston where I grew up? In fact, I, I, I grew up in the first gated community in Charleston, Gatson Green Projects. Because if you didn't know anybody in Gaston Green Project, you couldn't come in there. My daddy and them made sure of that. So it was gated. <laughs> so what, how do we change this community? This, this church has got a lot going on, but how does it affect change for total Charleston? You ask somebody something about St. Phillips, oh, yeah, that's the big church downtown. Well, what do they do? What is your gift? What is your part in this church? How's God called you by his name to be effective in this church? I was talking to Henry Fishman about being in the Ukraine with John Guest for, I guess, the first year we went over, three, four weeks, maybe a month. And the people there were so hungry. They, we had some Bibles 
sent over to uh, Ukraine by the Bible Society, and they sent this container of Bibles over. We were in this big soccer stadium, 100,000 people. And I'm so gung-ho or doing stuff, I made a mistake. To, I opened up a box in front of the stadium. I opened up a box of the Bibles. And you hear in the Bible when they said they thronged Jesus, when they pressed you up, they thronged me against the stage to come down to get the Bibles. And they, they got a Bible, and they went back up into the stands. And they didn't leave. They opened the Bibles and began to wait for John to preach. I said, never in America. You, you give us some Bibles in the stadium here in America, they get the Bibles, and they're going home. Well, they stayed, and they read these Bibles, and they listened to the word of God that came forth by an English brother with an interpreter. But they stayed. But the best part about it is, gosh, I can't count how many people came to Christ. They came public. They just came forward to receive Christ. And so as you are here listening to me, what is it that I can tell you to stir you up and go make a change? We had a 10-year-old kid got shot on the east side about a month and a half ago. And this little boy was just in the, in the park shooting his basket, and Brother Ed called me and told me about it and said, you need to get over here and talk to these kids. Well, they thought they were going to have to take his legs, but miraculously, they, they didn't. And so I made a plea to some of the pastors in the area. I said, what are we going to do to change the mindset of this little boy? Nobody really came together. But two weeks later, two white folk got, I got to say it like I got to say it, got shot down there by the old um, Bluesteins, and we had a whole new fleet of cops came out to make sure that we found the perpetrators. But the little 10-year-old boy on the east side was still recovering. It's almost like it didn't matter. And this little kid's going to be traumatized for the rest of his life. Brother Ed and I worked with him to make sure they're going to be fine. So where was the churches? Or where were the churches when that happened? It was, it was in the news. So where, where were they when that happened? I was warned by a good friend, Bert Camacho. And he, was, he was from the Philippines, and I met him, gosh, in 1983 in Atlanta. And we became friends. And he, he, he told me, he says, God has gifted you to do something different, and I want you to come to the Philippines. And I said, okay, well, the Lord will work that out. But before I can get a chance to go to the Philippines, I got a letter from his wife, and I, I, I laminated it. Bert Camacho was in an auditorium where they were ministering in the Philippines. And he was sitting in the auditorium with a youth rally. And in the youth rally, a, a, a guy, a person, walked up to him and asked him, are you Bert Camacho? And he just grunted, mm -hmm. as I say, yes. And the guy shot him point blank in his ear, shot him in his ears and killed him in front of all the kids in the Philippines. And his wife sent me this letter with a picture of his casket because he had warned me. He says, when you enter or engage into the evangelistic kinds of ministry like you're doing, he said, be very careful. He said, because you'll become a danger to people who don't love God. It shook me for a minute, but then I said, you know what? God's called me to do this thing. I've got to do this thing. So I have this picture as a reminder, this letter she sent me with his casket and everything. And as I was traveling with John Guest, when I went to a place that was a different kind of place, I had the Holy Spirit lead me and guide me into all spiritual truth. One of my best buddies in the whole world, Robert Clemens, who came to pick me up today when I was on city council, I, I had him walk with me one night through the east side at night. He's a white guy and a black guy. He's walking with me. He may hear a little gunfire and stuff like that. I said, we're fine. We'll be, be, be okay. And you got to let him tell you uh, about how, how that happened. But I wanted the community to know that he made an impact in my life as a business person on the east side. And I wanted the guys to know that, hey, yeah, he's my, he's my, my dog. He's walking with me. 
I don't want nothing to happen to him. Because he affected change in that community with his business. But see, anytime God's called you to do something, it's going to cost you something. In 1983, I got accepted by, by the Rick Hendrick Motorsport Corporation because I was one of the top 50 BMW Volvo salespersons on the southeast. And Rick Hendrick wanted to make sure that I got my own car dealership. And he sent this letter to the Chevrolet Zone people to have me accepted what they call the Dealer Minority Program. And I went through like flying colors. I went through this, I, I mean, like flying colors. And so we got the process going on. We're doing all the paperwork. And Rick wrote this letter that, hey, whatever has to happen financially or whatever, I'm going to back this guy to get his own dealership. And I'm laying in bed one night, and, and I heard this voice say to me, don't do it. I jumped up out of the bed. And when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you will know. People say, how do you know, Jimmy, when the Spirit is talking to you? I can't tell you, but you will know when the Spirit of God speaks to you. So I didn't pay any attention. I didn't even wake my wife up. I laid back down. And two weeks later, the same voice came back again. Didn't I tell you not to do this? Because I was getting ready to do the finalizing of the paper. I think they had a deal that came through somewhere in the upper part of the state. And I'm going to be one of the first black dealers in South Carolina. And this voice told me, do not do this. And I heeded the voice. And I drove to Charlotte. And I told Rick Hendrick, I can't do this. He said, you got to be one of the most incredible guys I know. And I'm telling you the story. Ministry is great till God asks you for all of your money. I'll say that again. Ministry is great till God asks you to give up all of your money. And that's what he did with Jimmy Gallant. And for 35 years, I have been living by faith. Folks see me, I got on a nice suit. I got a friend of mine to take me shopping. Lord told me, he said, if the people love what you're saying, the people will take care of you. Amen. And so from 1983 to now, I would have people call me sometimes and say, Brother Jimmy, you need anything? I got a call from Roger Goodell yesterday. I met him seven years ago on Kiowa Island, and he asked me to give him some bullet points to show him how he could teach these young black athletes when they get these million-dollar contracts how not to get involved in drugs, how not to beat up their wives, how not to get involved with wrong people. But he called me. The, the other day to tell me thanks for the prayers because the prayers worked this, street, this week because the young brother went home from the hospital. And the prayers that he and I had over the last seven years, we, he texted me sometimes and said, Rev, I need you to pray today. This is going on in my life. This is going on in the NFL. We've been praying. But the Lord made it real this past week because all of you saw it. Here's a kid that got injured on a football field, went into cardiac arrest, and he went home, what, yesterday? Today, he, so the Lord answered the prayers of a group of people through a man like that. They're, they were praying all through the NFL. And I, I was so happy to see them showing the guys in the circle praying the other day. But they do that at every game. They, they, they've been doing that for the last 10 years when the teams get together. But the, the media never showed it up until the other day. They decided now this is the time to show them praying. They've been praying. We've been praying. And so he asked me how I'm doing with the kids. He sent me a gift this past Christmas to help buy bicycles and stuff for the kids on the east side. And he said, Rev, I'm in. Don't worry about it. I'm sending you something to bless these kids. But I'm telling you this story because all of you that know some of the things that I've done in this community, it was a cost. You pay a price to do it. I served as the chaplain with Chief Greenberg for the Charleston PD for no pay for 25 years. 
He asked me not to give it up, not to quit, because the money wasn't there. But what was more important, the money or the lives of people? I remember he was coming out of the grocery store, and he walked into a crossfire, and he got shot. He was killed. And I went to the trauma center with one of the EMS guys, and Dr. Norcross, who was one of the surgeons in MUSC Trauma Center. And most of the police officers will tell you when he was available, if I got shot, I want to make sure Dr. Norcross is the surgeon, because he was that good. And so Dr. Norcross said to me, I need for you to go in there and tell that grandmother that that little boy did not survive this gunshot wound. And there were three grandmothers sitting in this waiting room. And I walked in and told them. And the grandmother, one of the grandmothers, his grandmother looked up at me and said, hey, boy, you, you follow me to such and such address over on um, Wolf Street. And I get over on Wolf Street, and there's hundreds of people at this house. And I walk in, and Mama Seal said to me, you're going to bury my grandboy. Never met the family in all my life. And she asked me to do his funeral. The impact that came out of it, there were over three, 400 kids at a funeral service at an auditorium that Brother Dallas and I had. It was called Agape Ministries. And each one of those kids' lives were changed because God had called us. When I mean us, I'm talking about the community to be there. And I just happened to be a part of it. Three, 200 kids made a decision to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It wasn't about the money for me. And then John calls me and tells me, we're going to Ghana, West Africa. I said, Ghana, West Africa? Ooh, that's, that's a good deal. I get to Ghana, West Africa, and I was like the out, out front guy for the John Guest team of that year. Whenever they went to a city or a town to do a crusade, I went in like two or three months before the whole team, and they would book me to speak at different places to tell about what would happen in the stadium when we did the big events and stuff like this. And I get to Ghana and find out they had me booked for 15 straight nights to preach in Ghana. F 15 straight nights. Anybody think 15 straight nights of preaching is easy? Let me just... <laughs> And I was just telling my brother sitting at the table, there were people that had different dialects in a place called Teshi, a place called Dansuma. And each night I spoke, there was a different dialect being spoken. So I had a, an interpreter to be with me as I was speaking. And there was a guy there that made these big African masses, and he heard me speak, and he called me, then I called me, came to see me, and said he was going to make one for me. And I gave him all of my clothes. That's all I did. I gave him all of my clothes to wear. And by the time I left Africa, he had two of these big old masses already carved out for me. I wish, I wish you could see him. My wife got him in the house. But he accepted the Lord more so than anything else. He accepted Jesus. And I said, Lord, I'm all the way over here in Africa. God says, you wouldn't have been there if you accepted the car dealership. He began to show me why he pulled me away from all that have been very lucrative to me. And a lot of people don't know that, because they look at the clothes I wear. I got a buddy of mine, y'all Y'all might know him, his name is Joe Land. That brother blessed me for the last 35 years. He, he would call me during the week, say, you need any money? You need anything? And there's some brothers that I know that are, that are brothers in the ministry that know me and know that I have a need. They'd never call me and ask me if I need any money. And let me tell you the best part of it's in the Proverbs that God says you will take the money from the wicked. I have drug dealers that come to me and say, Brother Galan, you need any money, man? Hey, put this in church with me and keep this for yourself. These are guys, and I know the drug dealers, but you know what they say to me? 
You're about the only pastor that walks this community and know what's going on. If something happens to me, I already told my mom and them, I want Brother Gallant to do my funeral. It's called relationships. What has God called you to do? Now, church is easy. Easiest thing to work in the world to do is show up at 11 o'clock. Folk come to church just to hear the choir. Folk come to church to hear brothers like me preach. But how many people actually walk into church every Sunday with a mindset just to worship Christ? They don't want to hear the, nothing. They just want to sit in the pew and say, you know what? I just want to worship God. I just want to say to the Lord, God, thank you. Thank you for blessing me. I've had my chest cracked open twice. I had open heart surgery in 2004. And then they had to go back in in 2017 because something came apart. And I said, God, I don't know, Lord. That's when I said, I don't know, Lord, going in. But I'm standing before you today. God brought me through that. And once again, God says, what happened if you had accepted the dealership? He was reminding me. We look at what's going on in our country right now today. Y'all know the story about Jesus and the, and the goats and the sheep? Y'all know that story? When he called them together and he says, for I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was hungry and you fed me. I was sick and you came to see me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And they said, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry, sick, and in prison and helped you? He said, you've done it to the least of these, my brethren. You have done it unto me. And then the reverse part about that is those on the left that did not do it. He said, you did not do it to these, the least of my brethren. You did not do it to me. That's why when I see poor people, I hurry, I hurry up and help them. Because one day the requirement is going to be, why didn't you help those people that didn't look like you? They didn't dress like you. They didn't come to your church. They didn't drive the cars like you were driving. Why did you not help them? And I don't want to be all over the place. Brian has asked me to come to talk to you and encourage you about my life in the Lord. I got a lot of stories to tell you. But the Bible says, without us seeking the Lord, nothing's going to change. Washington, D.C. can't change until we get the Lord in it. Come on, we can, we can, we can elect all the parties we want. But if the parties don't know Jesus, ain't nothing going to happen. Now, y'all looking at me kind of strange. Like, oh, he's stepping he step across the line now. He's getting a little political on us right now. But the truth is, is, hey, if we don't bring Jesus into the United States of America, nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change. But see, the heart of Christ will make me love my brother right there. The heart of Christ make me love Brian. Robert Clemens is one of my closest buddies in the world. And let me just tell you, Robert Clemens will call me periodically and ask me, do you need anything, Jimmy? That's the kind of guy he is because we have a relationship. Like I said, even the drug dealers look after me. I got people to go to church that don't ask me if I need anything. And they're singing hallelujah every Sunday. Not picking on anybody. But when you're walking with Christ, I walked away from a multi-million dollar deal in 1983. My spiritual mother says, God doesn't want you doing that. He said, she said, but baby... She said, don't worry about it. The Lord's going to take care of you. My wife went up to New Jersey because her sister had a heart valve surgery. 
And I had no money. I, I said, I'm, I'm barely aching at the Lord. I said, Lord, I, I said, Lord, listen, now, you, you told me, God. Now, mind you, I'm just telling you, God, you told me you were going to look after me. I mean, I'm barely aching to the Lord. I'm throwing stuff up in the Lord's face. My house is in foreclosure. And I'm just barely aching. Lord, this guy shows up at the door, ring the bell. He had a piece of paper, and there's a blue piece of paper in his hand. He said, are, are, you, are you James Escalante III? I, I said, yes, sir. He said, I'm from Cameron and Brown. Y'all remember Cameron and Brown in Raleigh, North Carolina? was a mortgage company. He said, I'm Cameron and Brown. I came here to foreclose on your house. I said, brother, if you want the house, take it. Put it on your back. Praise the Lord. Go with you. Go with it. And he looked at me. He said, are you a believer? And I said, what do you mean? He said, are you a Christian? I said, yes, I am. Praise God. Take the house. He said, well, brother, I'm a believer also. He took this piece of paper. He said, listen, don't worry about this. I got this. And he stuck it back in his court, grabbed my hands, and said, man, I'm going to be praying for you. I got this. That brother walked away. And I looked up and said, well, what just happened? The next day, I get a letter from my, minister, my mentor who mentored me in the ministry, Pastor Wayne Thompson, in the Fellowship of Faith Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And in the letter, he and his wife, Jerry, were praying. He said, the Lord showed them that I was in trouble. And as I began to read the letter, I kept opening it. And finally, there's a piece of paper dropped on the ground that I kept reading the letter. And they were saying, we, we just felt in the spirit that you were in trouble. So we wanted to send you a little something. So I kneeled down and I picked up the paper that dropped out of the letter. It was a check for $1,500 and something dollars. And I needed $1,400 and change to get my house out of hock. I looked up, and I, picked, I said, oh, me and you, Lord, me and you, God, we, 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 we got this now, Lord. <laughs> me and you, Lord. I'm still living in the same house today. The only other thing my wife ever got mad at me was, I put my house in hock to send some kids to prep school, to help some kids. You, you, you remember when Dallas and I used to send those kids off to school? You remember that. Some of you remember that. People come to me today, they don't have anything. This is when I leave, when I leave here in a few moments, I go in to help Chaplain Eva Smith from the jail. She called me the other night, says this, and three kids living in a house, and they've been sleeping on the floor in the cold. I said, I got you. I said, what do we need to do? She said, we need to go buy a couple of mattresses later this afternoon. No, let's go buy a couple of beds and make sure these kids don't have to sleep on the floor. That happens every day. I get a call every day, somebody needs something. And I'm not going to pass it on to somebody else. Sometimes if I'm running a little short, I call my buddy Robert. Robert, need a little something. He never tells me no. I've got some people in town I can do that to. But also, I've got some people in town that will call me and ask me, Jimmy Gallant, do you need any money? Not the church. Do you need any money? Because God told me he was going to put people out there. Richard, you can talk, you can talk to that. But that's my buddy Richard. He knows. Okay? So I've been rattling off to this group of men. You've heard some stories. I can tell you some more. Because, see, the body of Christ is anemic. Most of the body of Christ don't know nothing about the word of God. They can read it. They can get up and read the collect and read the epistle and read the gospel, but, but don't understand any of the readings. Can I tell you one of my favorite ones? Come on, somebody say amen. What about you guys? Somebody say Amen. Y'all sounded a little weak. Brian, I think I'm going to have to carry on to about 4.30. Because <laughs> I, I ain't getting no amens. I, I, I got it. 
Somebody better talk back to me before I let y'all stay in hell all afternoon. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Y'all know the story, right? Somebody tell me you know the story about Second Chronicles chapter 20. It's King Jehoshaphat. He had all these armies coming against him to fight. They didn't come to, to, to see him to have tea. They were coming to fight. They were coming to kick's butt. And from what they were saying, and I want to read the first part because I don't want to misquote it. It said that it happened that after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites, they came to battle against Jehoshaphat. They came to fight, all right? Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in Hezans and Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared. He was scared. This is the king. He got three armies coming to kick butt. Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord. You remember this. When you go to read this in your Bible today, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, read the whole chapter. He said he set himself to seek the Lord, and he called the fast throughout all Judah. He called the fast. You know what that means he did? He called church. In the midst of the armies coming to fight against him, he said, let's have church. Then he called for all of the families, the babies, the mamas, the dad, everybody. He said, we're going to seek God. Let me tell you what a fast is. It ain't always food. In Isaiah 58, the fast sometimes is taking the poor people out and taking care of them, taking the widows and the orphans. But the first part of the fast in Isaiah says you have to undo, undo all the wickedness that around you. Undo the wickedness. And guess what? Sometimes it appears that the church isn't successful. You know why? There's a lot of wickedness in the church. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. You think it's outside of the church. The wickedness sometimes is in the church. Okay? You go to some of them church meetings when something don't go right with one person. Oh, come on, somebody in here tonight. Take one person to get in the committee meeting to disagree, and guess what happened? The whole meeting gets in topsy-turvy. There's a whole deal if they don't like you. Y'all looking at Brother Galant kind of say, Brian, I don't know if I'm going to come back up in here, you know? <laughs> Jehoshaphat, call this fast. He says in the middle of the chapter, said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And in your hand, is there not power and might that no one is able to withstand you? That's down in the middle. I can't call the verse. He said, no one's able to withstand you. Well, he decided to fix it. In the middle of the conversation, said the spirit of the Lord came into Jehaziel, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jeniel, the, the spirit of the Lord landed on the priest, the Levite. It landed on the Levite and says, O King Jehoshaphat and you people of the Judah, do not be dismayed, do not be worried about it, for the battle is not yours but God's. Oh, come on, somebody. The battle is not yours but God's. <laughs> Thank you all. So the battle that we're facing in America today, because we, we got some shiggity going on in America that we need to pay attention to. Some of the disagreement we have in my country, and I live in too, and I like the flag, is because it's, it's among the people that say they love God. Some of the conflict we have in our country comes from people that speak in tongues and tell you they love Jesus. Some of them see you and go, 
they can speak to you in tongues and can't tell you good morning in English. Oh. <laughs> the spirit fell on the Levite, and the spirit of the Lord to the Levite told the people of, um, of, of Jehoshaphat's crying, don't worry about this battle. This ain't your battle. This battle belongs to God. I'll ask you a question again. What has God called you to do? Each one of you men, what is the specific thing that God's called you to do? This is a picture of me in the Garden of Gethsemane. I found this thing last night. I'm in the Garden of Gethsemane under a tree, under a vine in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I remember in Israel, John Guest asked me, he said, I need you to do the Beatitudes somewhere near the Sea of Galilee where it happened. I want you to teach it. And there must have been 30 or 40 people on this tour with us in Israel. And I was teaching the Beatitudes. And they said, we're going to take you on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And we got on this boat, and we went out on the Sea of Galilee, and the captain of the boat turned the engine off, and the boat just floated on the Sea of Galilee, and you would hear nothing. It was like, it was like Jesus was right there. It just floated and floated. And when I got off of that boat, I said, boy, I can't wait to get back to America. John, I'm ready to preach. I was fired up when I got off that boat. The Lord did something to me. When I got back to America, I tore every church up I went in. George said, John called me one day and said, they want you back in Nashville. They want you back in Utah. They want you back in Sacramento. I said, well, what happened? Whatever you did when you came back from Israel, you tore it up. In Salt Lake City, Utah, I'm doing this youth thing. They got all these Mormon kids in this meeting. And I did an altar call. I talked to them about Jesus. A whole bunch of kids got saved. At the end of the service, the pastor came to me and said, you don't know what you did in here tonight. You don't, just don't know what you did in here tonight. I said, what did I do? He said, you see those kids right there? I said, yeah. Their daddy is a Mormon stake president. I said, what's a Mormon stake president? A, no, a Mormon stake president is over 40 or 50 churches alone. He is over those churches. Well, the daddy came the next night. They, they, had, they, they brought his daddy the next night. Guess what happened? The Holy Ghost jumped on the daddy the next night, jumped all over him. He stood up in the back and waved his hand at me and said, I got this. He got, <laughs> he got saved the very next night. But you know what happened to him when he got saved? When you come or uh, exit out of Mormonism, they defunct you. If you got a business, they won't, they won't buy from you anymore. They excommunicated him, excommunicated him. But he came to me in Salt Lake City, Pastor Raymond Ravan told me, he said, that man lost everything because you was used to lead him to Christ. And he said, he's not going back to Mormonism. He found Christ. And he said, tell you, Jimmy Gallant, thank you. That's what God will do. The Spirit will do stuff like that. But see, as I'm telling you, you say that you love the Lord. I don't know how much you love God till you take some of your money. All together now. Amen. I don't have no retirement. I got a little bit. But all the stuff that my buddies that went to school with me got, they got big nest eggs. I used my nest eggs to bury little boys that got killed in the street, and mama and daddy didn't have no money to bury them. My wife beat me up. She said, if I didn't love you, I'd be out of here. <laughs> I have used my savings to bury kids that got killed, not only on the east side, on the west side, all over, that didn't have money to bury their kids. But you know the hard part about that? Not only did they have money to bury them, these kids has kids 
And when these kids get sick, they don't even have insurance to take them to the hospital. I get calls from some of the grandmothers. I got a Russian ruble in my hand. My, my, my interpreter in, in Russia's name was Misha. Misha at the time was 15 years old. And my first trip into Russia, uh, wherever me and Misha went, I gave him a $5 bill and he started crying. I said, what's the matter? I gave him $5. One American dollar is worth 21 Russian rubles. So when I gave him $5, I gave him a bunch of money. Okay? And I started to calculate what this ruble, this, this 100 ruble, what it meant in Russia, the, the value of the money. And every day I used to give Misha $10, $20. You know, hey, listen, you know. And he, I mean, he would just go crazy. And if you meet most Russian of uh, you in the Ukraine and you're buying something, they ask you, you got, you got dollar or rubles? They want dollar. Because the dollar's worth more. And I remember just telling Misha, um, something about how my daddy raised me. And he began to cry. He said, the people love you, Jim, here in Russia. So John called me and said, we got an assignment for you. I said, oh, oh Lord, here we go. What's my assignment? They said, they want you to do street preaching, not in Ukraine, but in Russia. So we went to Moscow, we got on this plane. And the navigator of the plane sat in the nose of the plane. Them Russian Aeroflat planes, oh, they were, they were, they were, whoo, let me tell you, I was praying the whole time. We was flying in that plane. The navigator is sitting in the nose of the plane. And they fly different. So we went to Moscow, and they, and they took me to these corners to preach. I'm doing my time. I'm good? Yeah. Hey, man, we got to 4 o'clock. If you got to leave this, this, this <laughs> you got to leave this, stop by the offering plate when you go. So we're, we're, we're sitting there, and he's telling me how they wanted me to speak on this corner. This old Russian guy came up to me, and Misha was interpreting back from English to Russian. And he came, and he put his hand on my face. He said, you remind me of the black comrades I fought with in World War II. And he started crying. He had an old scruffy beard, and he kissed me. He said, I heard your voice through the sound system. And I was in my flat. I said, I needed to come to hear who was that was speaking. And that old man came down, and guess what, y'all? He accepted Christ. He accepted Christ. I, I could tell you about the last 20 years of my life where the Lord has had me because I walked away. I got another picture of Bert Camacho, my buddy that got killed, and he wanted me to come. He wanted me to come to the Philippines. We never was able to put that together because he got assassinated serving the Lord in the Philippines. And I was advised by the team leaders that set up my international trips, said now may not be the best time for you to go to the Philippines. And his wife kept the ministry going. And I used to send X amount of dollars to the Philippines every month for my little money. I would send it to the Philippines. I got back from the Philippines, and I'm going to speed up this, my, uh, not from the Philippines, from Russia, and I went through Amsterdam, and coming back from Amsterdam, I got to, Ch to Charleston, I got a call. They said, they want you in Nassau, Bahamas. What? Yep, they, they want, somebody heard you, and they want you in, in Nassau, Bahamas. Joe Land paid for the whole three weeks I went there. 
He said, go minister, brother. Don't worry about nothing. Yes, that brother took care of the whole thing. And in Nassau, Bahamas, the first place they took me was an AIDS village. Back then, remember when AIDS became very popular and people was afraid because of AIDS? They put all the people that had AIDS on the island at the end of the island. They had them in a center, and nobody wanted to touch them. Pastor Bobby Colebrook, the pastor of St. Paul's Baptist Church on New Hill Road in Nassau, Bahamas, says, would you go? I said, come on, Bobby, let's go do this. And we went back to that, ho that home. But all, maybe 30 or 50 people got AIDS, face peeling, fingernails coming off. And he told them, he said, this brother is from America. And he came to minister to y'all, and I ministered to them. I took my communion kit. I gave him communion. And when I left and went back to Bobby's church to do a service at his church that night, somebody called Bobby and says, hey, they, they want him to come back tomorrow. All the people in the village want him to come back tomorrow. Would he come back? After the service, Bobby said, you, you want to go back out to the village tomorrow? I said, why not? We went back out there again the next day. Let me just tell y'all, like, like we say on the corner, we had some church up in there. Oh, we ministered to those folk, man, that had AIDS. And I let them touch me. I let them hug me and everything else. And I told Bobby, he said, Bobby, I think this was the best part of me being in Nassau, Bahamas. He said, no, we're going to a place called Geriatrics tomorrow. It's worse than this. I'm telling you that story because I'm going to end on this. The question I asked you when I got up to speak, what is your calling in life? What has God called you to do? It's more than Sunday morning, guys. Sunday morning is easy. Get up at 11 o'clock, come here to choir, take communion, put your money in the offerings, and go back home. Every 28 minutes in America, a young girl is raped. Right in America. Every 42 minutes in America, an African-American boy is killed by a gun somewhere every 42 minutes. Come on. Right, right where we live. Right here in Charleston. 28% of the kids that go home go home to a house with a mom is a single-parent mom. Out of that 28%, 11 or 13% of fathers are incarcerated. They'll never see their daddy again because their daddy locked up. And then we sit back and we, we complain. Oh, they're just welfare people taking welfare money. That's the biggest lie that, that ever been per perpetrated on God's people. Some of those mothers are working right now in a hotel. At 4 o'clock this afternoon, they get off, and they go home for one hour to be with their kids. And by 6 o'clock, they got to be on the second job so that they can take care of their children. They don't get off the second job till 11 o'clock at night. When they get home, their kids are sleeping. They might see their kids the next morning if they're not in school. That's what happens all around here and other parts of America. But we point fingers at those girls and call them, call them they're they taking money. They're just trying to make ends meet for their kids. My time is up. That's all I can tell you. AIG, all I got. <laughs> Amen. Can I pray for you while you're up here? Amen. I hope that was all right. Yeah. All right, so. Thank you, Jimmy. I'm going to pray for Jimmy, and then I'm going to end us with a blessing. So let us pray. Dear, thank you for the way that he has listened to your voice, whether it was don't do it or whether it was I'm calling you to go do this. Lord, we thank you for the way that you've used him around the world, and we pray that you would continue to pour your Holy Spirit out on him. And Lord, for all of us, we pray that you would help us 
to listen for your voice, to know that voice when we hear it, to not be afraid, and to say, Lord, where you lead, I will go. And Lord, we pray that as we go through these men's lunches this year, that we would not just hear things that are interesting, but that you would challenge us in our hearts to go deeper and stronger and following hard after you. And now I pray that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, would keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be upon you and remain with you always. Amen.